That brings us to Romans this morning. And uh, let me just say from the beginning here how proud I am of you guys <laughs> for slogging your way through this tough stretch of passages dating back to the start of Romans 9 specifically. We talked about Romans 8 and how it was like the top of Everest and it was just this mountaintop experience and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and we're hoorah and hoorah and hooray and huzzah and it's all good. And then it was just like we, we started down the, the, the stark, bleak face of the backside of Everest. And I don't mean to paint this, these passages as bad, but they're hard. This is hard stuff, guys. And it would be easier to skip it and move on and just go to chapter 12 and start talking about practical application, which we will do in a few weeks. We're not skipping anything, but we'll get to chapter 12. So I just want to say thank you for your diligence. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your <coughs> grace as I stumble through some of this stuff too because it's hard. But the Word of God is good and this hard, heavy lifting makes us muscular. And we, we need to be muscular for the times that we're in to function well. So thank you is what I want to say out of that. Now I want to ask you a question. Has anybody sitting in this room this morning ever experienced what it's like to have somebody make you a promise and that promise get broken? I'd say most of us have, right? It's a pretty crummy feeling, isn't it? Somebody promises something. I promise that this is going to happen and then it doesn't happen. Or I promise that we can do this together. Or I promise that we'll have this for dinner or whatever it is. Working up at the therapy place at Life Strategies, I deal with a lot of people who promise to be faithful to their spouses, and they weren't. And it's crushing. You make a promise, you keep a promise. That's what I was always taught. And I mean, you know, late 90s, I was trained to be a promise keeper, right? Anybody else? Yeah, yay. Real men keep their promises is what I heard back then. And I really, you know, I really make it an effort, and you can ask my kids, I hope, I really make an effort to not promise something unless I know for sure that we can do it or will do it or I will do it because it's a big deal. To make a promise is a big deal. The word itself just kind of drips with the motion of promise and it's hooks that kind of grab you. What we're going to look at today, this passage makes it evident that God is faithful in both making and keeping His promises. If you would stand with us, we're going to read Romans 11, 25 through 32. We'll only make it through verse 29 today, but we're going to read this whole passage because it's such a self-contained unit. If you have a Bible and you're following along, Romans 11, 25 through 32. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Let's pray. God, help us to push through the wall this morning. If I'm honest with you, God, if I'm honest with these people, and if I'm honest with myself, I'm tired of hard passages. But God, would you help us? The little bit of time that I spent in the weight room, God, I can think about every time I was done, somebody would say, one more. One more. God, we've got a couple more at least. Would you help us? Would you empower us? And would you... Tear the muscles that need to be torn and would you replace them with bigger, stronger, longer lasting muscles. As we labor in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, God teach us, equip us, and use us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I don't want to be dramatic. I don't mean to be overly dramatic about these passages, but... uh, I'm telling you, it's hard, y'all. This is hard. Uh, Amanda said yesterday, she said, I think this is the hardest stretch of passages I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, I agree. It's definitely the hardest stretch that I've ever preached in my life. I mean, I could go through Philippians and yeah, 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 ooh, yeah. You know, First John, yeah, there's some hard parts in there, but I'm like, this, man, this is tough. And again, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just asking for grace, first of all, and I'm asking you to... Labor on with me. So first verse of our passage today, 1125. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Man, what a what a verse. Now we came out of last week where we saw that God had grafted the Gentiles into the cultivated olive tree. And that cultivated olive Cultivated olive tree provides His life, God's life, to us who have been grafted in, us being the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. And Paul said there that we should not be arrogant. Just because we were grafted in, we shouldn't look at the the branches that were lopped off. And let me be clear about something. Our personal application last week was about individuals. The passage was clearly about Jews being broken off, the Jews being broken off, and the Gentiles being grafted in. I don't want you leaving here, and I hope you didn't leave here last week, worried about being cut off as an individual. We do not fear that. Remember I said Romans 8? If, if, if we have to fear being cut off, Romans 8 was nonsense. But I want to be clear that the branches that were broken off was the nation Israel, corporate, ethnic, physical Israel were the branches that were broken off and the branches that were grafted in were the Gentiles. Okay, So don't be arrogant as Gentiles over the Jewish people saying, we're in the tree now and you're not. Because Paul said what? He can graft them back in. He can cut you off as the Gentiles. And I think what we'll see today is, I think that time's coming. So be careful. Don't be arrogant and say we're the centerpiece of God's plan and that He's done with the Jews because He's not. We'll get to that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So he said we shouldn't be arrogant. And here he says something similar. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Paul is addressing his readers and reminding them that they are not to elevate themselves over the Jews in general and their Jewish brothers and sisters in particular. Lest ye be wise in your own sight, which implies so that you don't think you know more than you really do. So that you don't think you're smarter than you really are. And so that that doesn't happen, Paul drops a big old wisdom bomb on them right here. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. He says he doesn't want them to be unaware, which literally means ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. And Paul said that a lot. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. I want you to know something. I want you to learn something. I want you to hear something. He says that over and over and over again through his letters. He doesn't want people to be ignorant. So what's he do? He teaches. He preaches. He writes. I don't want you to be ignorant. And it's kind of funny to me because he says, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight, but I don't want you to be ignorant. You see the juxtaposition there? Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't be ignorant. Well, should I not be wise? Should I be wise? Should I not? I shouldn't be ignorant, so I should be wise, but you're telling me not to be wise in my own sight. So should I be ignorant in my own sight? But what's going on here? I don't want you to be wise in your own sight, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant. Not wise in their own sight, but not ignorant either. Not their wisdom, but a different kind of wisdom. So he tells them a mystery. And a mystery here doesn't mean something you're trying to figure out with clues and we just figured out blues clues. We just figured out. Ba ba He tells them a mystery, but mystery here is not like something that they're looking for. A mystery is something that in the past has been hidden. And at the present time, God reveals it. Now, with that being said, there is still some mystery to the mystery. Because we don't see it all in full. Something comes to light and we see something in God's plan that we've never seen before, but we still don't see it in full. So there is this sort of... hmm. But the main thing that he's saying is this was hidden in times past, but now it's been revealed in God's plan. That's what mystery means here. And what is the mystery that Paul doesn't want his readers to be ignorant of? What mystery might help them to not be wise in their own sight? The mystery is a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is loaded with doctrinal, eschatological, real life, everyday life impact. That statement is huge. We've spent the last few weeks talking about Jewish disobedience and hardening and getting what they deserve. And it would seem like going all the way back to Abraham, Moses, and Elijah, and all through the history of the Jewish people that by and large... They have been a rebellious and obstinate people who have had a remnant, a very small remnant, who were truly believers and worshipers of the one true God. And the fact that they were disobedient turned out to be good news for us because it opened the door of salvation to us Gentiles, which was the rest of the world besides the little remnant 
the little Jewish ragtag group of God's people. So with God's desire to bless the world and the Jews rejecting the Messiah, it would seem that God's plan and His ultimate desire was to work with and focus on the Gentiles and the rest of the world, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, God wants the world to know Him. He wants the world to be saved. But, listen to me, He is not finished with Israel. A partial hardening has come upon them. And note that word partial. All this talk over the past few weeks about their being hardened has to be seen through a lens that indicates that this work of God to harden disobedient Israel is partial. It's not total and it's not final. So to make sure the Gentiles in the Roman church and in our church don't get too heady or haughty, thinking that they are the capstone of God's plan for redeemed humanity, Paul makes it clear that all that is happening with not only the is happening not only with the foreknowledge of God, but it's happening with the very purposeful intervention of God. Israel was hardened by God for their disobedience. God did that, but He's not done with them yet. So God is very active in this process. And in this activity of God, He has ordained that Israel's hardening will be partial, not final or full. And then the question would be, okay, if it's partial, how long is this going to last? And look at this next phrase. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what did I just say? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means at a certain point in time, when a certain number of Gentiles has come in, has believed then that hardening is going to be lifted. So get the time reference. There's coming a time. I not, you know, I grew up here at about, and maybe this is right. I don't know. I'm, this is just really making me wrestle, and that's good. I grew up hearing that when that last believer believes, then something dramatic is going to happen. Maybe it's Jesus coming back, or maybe it's the uh, the the persecution, the tribulation begins, or maybe it's something cataclysmic, or maybe that's going to be one of the trumps of Revelation. When that last believer believes, when that last, and what he's saying here is, there is a definite point in time, and there is a full number of the Gentiles. Now, do you get the implications of that? God has marked out a full number of Gentiles that are His sheep. And when the last one comes in, then the hardening will be lifted from Israel. Now listen, you can kick against the goads all you want about predestination and election. This is plain. There's a full number of Gentiles and there's a time and place when that full number will have come in. Can we delay that plan? I don't think so. Well, if we're lazy Christians and don't preach the gospel, the full number can't come in. No. No. One thing I want you to hear this morning is this is God's plan. This is God's doing. And He has set a full number of the Gentiles. And one day, 
that full number will come in. And when they do, when that last one comes, this hardness will last until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now we talked a couple weeks ago about different views of end times, dispensationalism, covenant, veins of thought, two different veins of thought, dispensationalism, covenant, veins of thought, and how they work out in God's economy with the Jews, the Gentiles, and how they differ. And that surely comes into account when we, when we try to interpret what Paul is saying here. Again, first, it's apparent that God has not cast off Israel. Ethnic, national Israel. And He hasn't cast them off for good. Their hardening is partial, which, by the way, partial means it's only for part of the time, for part of the people. We know that there's a remnant. Paul was Jewish. He was saved. So it wasn't like he cut off every Jewish person. And this hardening is in place until a certain time, a certain point. And what is that point in time? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That statement means there will come a time when all the Gentiles who were appointed to eternal life... And I want to show you Acts 13, 48. Until appointed to eternal life language comes from this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord... And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's Acts 13, 48. So which Gentiles believed when they heard the message? Those, as many as were appointed to eternal life. Well, who appointed them to eternal life? God did. They didn't appoint themselves. So when I use this phrase here, the statement... There will come a time when all the Gentiles who were appointed to eternal life will come into the covenant promises that they were predestined to come into before the foundation of the world. And when that happens, well then what happens after that happens? Let's look at the next two verses in Romans 26 and 27 of chapter 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I mean, the the implications here are mind-blowing. The thoughts that come out of this are huge. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in... We get this from Paul by way of inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. All, all Israel, all Israel will, all Israel will be, all Israel will be saved. Now what? Let that soak for just a second. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in this way, when the hardening is lifted, all Israel will be saved. Israel. Disobedient, self-righteous, exclusive, Messiah-rejecting, Gentile-hating Israel. That Israel... The same Israel that persecuted the prophets and worshipped Baal and Asherah and every other Canaanite, Phoenician god and goddess that they would catch a whiff of in their high places and their gardens. 
Israel, who sees the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our day to them as anti-Semitic and has called for the purification of their religion by making sure any mention of Jesus Christ is wiped out of any correspondence with them? That Israel? And some would say, no, 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 not that Israel. (laughs) Some would say that the Israel that will all be saved is in reference to the, quote, true Israel. The Israel of God. And they get that from Galatians 6.16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And what they say is the Israel of God is saved people whether they be Jews or Gentiles. So they take this passage in Romans and say that all Israel will be saved means the people who are going to believe are going to believe. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Not at all. The Israel mentioned in Galatians is not the Israel mentioned in Romans. This is hard. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is hard, y'all. So is the Israel in Romans the same as the Israel in Galatians? Some would say no. These people would say that Israel in Romans is ethnic national Israel. Not spiritual Israel, but physical Israel. Who's right? Because the implications of it are huge. Because it surely affects how God works and who God saves in the future. So the question is, has God in the past... Is God now and will God in the future, listen, act in different ways to work in and through different people groups in His redemptive purposes? Now let me get something straight as I can get it. I'm not asking are there different ways to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is a two-track theology out there that says there's a different track for believing Gentiles and a different track for Israel. It's not true. Paul never infers or implies this at all in the book of Romans or anywhere in his letters or anywhere in the Bible. There is one way to God and it is through the man Jesus Christ. We're not all climbing up the same mountain and we'll all get there someday. That's not true. And any Jew that tries to get to heaven any way except through the way will not make it. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying will God work in different ways, in different methods. I'm asking will He act differently toward different groups of people at different times in redemptive history. Now we've already seen that He has already acted different. He has hardened the Jews because of their disobedience. And He has turned His focus to the Gentiles. So in the future, will he turn his focus away from the Gentiles and focus on the Jews? And I say, yeah, I think so. That's what Paul is saying, not inferring, not being veiled at all. He's saying the hardening will be lifted, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, which means they will put their trust and their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and they will be born again. So will God act differently at different times of history to accomplish His redemptive purposes? And I really think the clear answer is yes. His focus will be different on different groups of people.
And that's tough because I don't understand it. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being honest with you. I don't understand it. In the context of Romans 11, I think it has to be evident that Israel is referring to a people group. Ethnic, physical, national Israel. And they're set in contrast to whom? The Gentiles. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And we were saying all along that this thought pattern in chapters 9 through 11 was in reference to the Jewish people. They were the ones whose future was seen as putting the feasibility of God's Word in jeopardy because they had cast it off. And it looks like God's Word has failed because His covenant people weren't a part of it. They were the ones Paul was longing for their salvation. His kinsmen, according to the flesh, fleshly Israel, clearly ethnic Jews. And his thought pattern all the way through these chapters has not altered or changed. So it seems to be easily discernible that there was a time when God consigned the Jews to disobedience in a partial hardening and opened the doors of salvation wide to the Gentiles And there will come a time when the fullness of those Gentiles will be reached and at that time, God will unharden the Jews and all Israel will be saved. And I can't help but see that as plain, the plain, clear interpretation of this passage. The easiest way to interpret most scriptures is the clearest, plainest interpretation is the right one. So, now the question turns to, what does it mean all Israel? Will every single Israelite come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ at this time? Now we know from past messages in Romans that not all Israel up to this point has been saved, right? Not all ethnic Israel has been saved. We've seen that clearly. In fact, we spoke about a believing remnant insinuating that even in the past, the true believers in national Israel were few and not prevalent. So... Will God so alter His work that every single person of Israelite descent will come to Jesus and be saved? Now again, in this context, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And I know I just said you've got to take the easiest interpretation. The easiest interpretation of all is all. But the context tells us something different. All means all, but where does and what does all mean? And I'm not trying to play verbal gymnastics. I'm just asking if the direct context of this passage is saying that there will come a time in the future when every single ethnic Jew will get saved. Let me give you a couple quotes from some teachers that I respect that might help explain what I think it means because I agree with what they're saying. They think it means. Tim Keller says, Likely it means a great mass of the Jewish people. This is how the word, quote, Israel is used through the rest of the chapter. Paul often uses it to refer to the majority of Israel over and against the minority of believing Jews. That is, though he himself is part of Israel ethnically, he does not include himself when he speaks of Israel rejecting the gospel. Continuing the quote, Many people think that Paul must mean a last-minute, large-scale mass revival of Christianity among Jews. And that could be the case, Keller says. But Paul's language allows for the possibility of a steady but growing flow of Jews into Christianity until we arrive at the place where more or most Jews have come to believe. That's Tim Keller. Here's John Piper. Now, how is this going to happen, Piper says. I don't know the details, but it seems to me that Paul does mean 
And this is where some of the dispensationalism comes in. Piper says, To me, Paul does mean that in connection with the second coming of Christ, there will be a great turning of Israel to Christ. Just how it works, I don't know. And then Piper says, But I find certain prophecies very suggestive. For example, he says, Zechariah 12.10. Will read this last week before the service. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So he's saying there's going to come a time when they see Jesus and when they see Jesus, they'll repent. Then he goes to Isaiah 6, 8. This is still in the Piper quote. Who has heard such a thing? He's got the wrong reference here. This is not my fault. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Which is not Isaiah 6. And then he goes to Matthew 23, 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again, Jesus said to the Jews, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's coming a time in the future, according to Jesus, when the Jews will look at him when he comes and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And people said, what about Palm Sunday? They didn't say that. They told the kids to shut up saying that, as a matter of fact. So then Piper goes on, I don't want to go beyond what is clear, so I say that I am not sure about the precise when and how of Israel's conversion, but that it is coming and that it will be given by Jesus Christ, the Deliverer, who banishes ungodliness and forgives sins. Of that I feel sure. And then he finishes this way. No, that was his finish. I'm sorry. Then I say... What, what they're saying, what Keller and Piper are saying, which aren't exactly the same, but, but the overall flow of thought makes sense to me personally, that at some point in the future, something significant is going to happen that will mark a shift in God's activity away from the Gentiles and back to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And they will, in mass, come to Jesus and trust in Him for their salvation. I do not believe that all in this passage means that every single member of the Jewish race will get saved. I believe it means that at that point, whenever, whatever it may be, some people think it's the rapture. I'm not sure about that, but that's a a possibility. Then God will turn His attention to the Jewish nation and race, and they will respond to Him by being saved and trusting Jesus. Again, not every single Jew, but the Jews in general as a group, in the same way Paul lumped all Jews together into disobedience and being hardened. The hardening will be rescinded, and as a result, God's chosen people, the Jews, will again be in the spotlight of God's plan. I don't know all the hows, whens, whys. But Paul said it's going to happen. Then Paul goes to some Old Testament quotes to show that God has always planned on this. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And notice he starts that section with, as it is written, to make sure that his readers understand that what follows is in the Scriptures, their Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures. The first part of the quote is from Isaiah 59, 20 and 21 that says, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And that passage highlights God's operation as the Deliverer of His people and the one who will banish ungodliness from Jacob or Israel. 
And then verse 27 from Romans 11 is a paraphrase of Jeremiah 31 where God says He will establish a new covenant with Israel and forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now two things to note from those two passages quickly. (coughs) Excuse me. First is that it is God who is doing these things. He is the deliverer banishing ungodliness and taking away their sins. And secondly, He speaks of His covenant with them as a future thing. A new covenant with the people of Israel. And I surely do believe that we are partakers of the new covenant promises that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about in their prophecies. But I also believe here that Paul is saying the Jews will become partakers of it like they never have before, being moved to jealousy by our partaking of these covenant promises. They will finally receive these promises that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about in the new covenant. But right now, at this moment, it looks bleak for them, doesn't it? Bleak enough to have Paul in anguish over the state of his kinsmen according to the flesh. How bleak is it? 11.28 As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. Now what do you do with this verse? It's bleak enough that Paul says regarding the gospel, the Jews are enemies. Enemies of who? Enemies of the gospel, enemies of God. For our sake, for the Gentiles' sake. Now what does that mean? I think it means exactly what it says. Who persecuted Jesus as much as anybody? The Jews did. Now listen, we are are not anti-Semitic. I'm not saying the Jews killed Jesus, but they surely persecuted Him, right? The Jewish leaders, the Jewish fathers, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Man, they were hard on Jesus. They were His enemies. And they were Jewish. Who persecuted Paul in his journeys as much or more as anybody? The Jews did. They stoned him and left him for dead. The Jewish leaders in each town that he came into rejected him, pushed him out, get out of here, you're a heretic, we don't want you here. They were enemies of Jesus, they were enemies of Paul, and they were enemies and are enemies of the gospel. Why? For the sake of the Gentiles. That's getting back to the idea from earlier in the chapter that said the Jews were hardened so that salvation could come to the Gentiles. They were hardened. They were made enemies of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. So let me ask you a question. Were and are the Jews the enemies of God? Gulp? Yes. That's what he's saying. As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. Now, I just stood here in front of you people and said that the Jews were the enemies of God. That's hard stuff. Let me go into a Jewish synagogue and say that. Because that's what Paul ended up doing. That's what Jesus did. You brood of vipers. Who told you to... John first, John the Baptist. You brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come. Then Jesus said, Your whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, brood of vipers. He called them enemies. 
He called the Jews His enemies. And today, this says, as regards the gospel, they are the enemies of God for our sake. So the Jews are the enemies of God. Now, does that mean that they are helpless and hopeless? Let me tell you something. You were an enemy of God. Before you were born again, you were at war with God, whether you know it or not. You were God's enemy. But now look at us. We've been helped. We have hope. It's what the gospel can do. So are they enemies to the point that God can't do anything with them? Nope, they're not. Are they helpless, hopeless enemies of God? Not at all. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. Now, now what? Are they enemies or are they beloved? And the answer is yes. John MacArthur said they are beloved enemies. <laughs> at the moment, they are enemies. That has not always been true and it will not always be true. The forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their believing descendants that proceeded from them were the forefathers. They were the roots that we talked about last week that bring nourishment to the rest of the tree that we've been grafted into. And they were that. They were beloved on the basis of what? On the basis of God's choosing, electing grace. I called you out of Ur the Chaldeans. I did that, God said, because He has grace. Then they were hardened. But they won't always be hardened. They won't always be enemies because God made promises to the beloved, chosen forefathers. And for the sake of the forefathers, even the Jews who are enemies of God are beloved. Now try to wrap your mind around that. Anybody ever been mad at your kids? <laughs> I love you! This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Beloved enemies. But they won't always be hardened. They won't always be enemies because God made promises to the beloved chosen forefathers. So what does that mean? Last verse for the day. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable, if you prefer that. Somebody was sitting there going, I hate it when he says irrevocable. It's irrevocable. Yes, it's both, okay? So, for that word. Anybody familiar with the word for? Have we seen it before in Romans? Paul never uses that word, does he? Just every other word, basically. Coming out of the previous verses where we saw that God is going to re-up on His promises and plans for ethnic Israel and we see that the Jews are the beloved enemies of God, we come to the reason for it all. For. Because. Why would God ever think about coming back to Israel? Move on, God. Greener pastures. Wider field. You've got the whole world or you got the little Jewish race. Which one do you want, God? Why in the world would He ever come back to ethnic Israel? Why would He come back to them after He hardened them for their disobedience? Why would He be interested in those who have shown no interest in Him, at least in a way that is in accordance with knowledge, to quote Paul from earlier? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
Now what did Steve read this morning in Genesis 15? What happened in that whole passage? God made a covenant with a man. That should stagger us, by the way. God made a covenant with a man. God made promises to an individual. One man. And it was amazing what God promised him. God made a covenant with the descendants of Abram when He made that covenant with Abram. And He said that He would give the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates to Abram's offspring. You ever thought about that? How much land is that? See the red lines? Over there is the river Nile, which is the river of Egypt. Up there on the right in the red is the river Euphrates. And what God told Abram was, all that land is going to be yours and your descendants. Now, unless I'm just crazy, which is possible, this is a bad idea. Unless I'm just crazy, the only land that I see the Jews inhabiting, especially today, is about right here. Well, about right there. Now what is this and what is that? And what's all that in between? That's all of their enemies. And that's land that as far as I know... Unless I'm crazy, which maybe I am. They've never occupied all that land. Now what do I do with this? So now wait a second. Even at the height of Solomon's kingdom, the Israelites didn't have all that land. Am I right? My heart rate's elevated a little, y'all. You're going to have to give me a second. But God made a promise to Abram that his offspring, his physical descendants, would inhabit the land from the river of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates. That's never happened. But God made a promise to Abram that it's going to happen. So, is it going to happen? Yes. When's it going to happen? So, there's coming a time in the future sometime when God's covenant with Abram will be fulfilled with Abram's physical descendants. Is that true? Or is it the Israel of God that will inhabit that land? <laughs> or does it matter? I think it does matter. Because if there's not a time that descendants of Abraham are in that land, God's covenant is invalid. He makes promises that He breaks. Does that matter? 
think it does. And this whole conversation started back in chapter 9 with Paul questioning whether or not the Word of God had failed since the Israelites were not actively involved in the covenant with God. So had the Word of God failed? By no means, Paul said. So it might look like God's Word had failed, but God's plan was being worked to perfection. And part of that plan was the descendants of Abram occupying that big chunk of land according to God's promises. And God's gifts and God's callings, God's covenants are irrevocable. Which means they can't be gone back on. They can't be repented of is the literal translation. So it's not like God got up the road somewhere and said, Oh man, sorry I made that covenant with Israel. Dadgummit, I forgot I got an appointment later. With the Gentiles, I can't... Ah. God didn't get up the road somewhere and feel sorry that He made that promise to Abram. So has the Word of God failed? By no means. God's not repenting of His promise. God does not get sorry and start to rethink the promises He has made. He's not sorry He made promises to Abram and his physical descendants. He will not repent or change His mind about the promises He has made. God gave them gifts. God called them and that is irrevocable by God's doing, by God's choice. Do you get that? They were made at God's choice and they are maintained by God's doing and they will be fulfilled by God's power. Even in the face of the disobedience of the people that He made the covenant with. Breathe that in a second. When God makes a promise, He doesn't take it When God gives a gift, He doesn't take it back. When God calls, He doesn't uncall. That's the only hope of the Jewish people. And you know what? It's my only hope too. Oh no, you never let go. Which brings us to application. Three points of application. I did not alliterate them. They were too hard. Sorry. There I said it. First point of application is don't be wise in your own sight, but don't be ignorant. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Two big calls in that passage. Don't be wise in your own sight, which is verse 5 and verse 7. Thinking, man, I got this thing figured out. But he's also saying... Don't be ignorant. There is a wisdom greater than yours. There is is a plan that supersedes and is over and above anything you could think or imagine. And it's the Word of God. It's the plan of God. It's the calling of God. And listen to me, church. Don't think that you've got it all figured out. 
and that your way makes perfect sense. But look at the Word of God. Look at the ways of God and don't be ignorant of them. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do not do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do not be ignorant and lean on the prevailing wisdom, quote unquote, of the day. We live in foolish days, people. Foolish. I read this morning, we were at home, and the headline on Yahoo News said, Transgender boy wins girls wrestling tournament. Uh, the wisdom of the day is foolishness. Do not be wise in your own sight. Don't lean upon the wisdom of the world by being ignorant of God's Word. God's Word calls foolishness foolishness and wisdom wisdom. So don't be wise in your own sight. Don't lean on the wisdom of today Rightly handle the word of truth. Don't be ignorant of the Bible. You have no excuse for being ignorant of the Bible. None. It's on your phone. It's on your iPod. It's on the radio. It's on YouTube. It's on everything we could possibly imagine. We have access to the word of God. And if we're ignorant of it, it's because we are lazy. And I'm not trying to beat you up. We have no excuse. If we can browse Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, we have time to study the Bible. I don't care how many people liked my post. Do I know the wisdom of God? Because it's available to me. Don't be wise in your own sight, but don't be ignorant. (laughs) That's Paul's words. That was the first point of application. Second point, know the past to know the future. And where do we see the past most clearly portrayed? In the Bible. Look back at the foolishness of Israel, at their disobedience to avoid doing the same things. And if you don't think we are doing the same things, you're crazy. I've called you lazy and crazy this morning, okay? I'm not apologizing for that. We're doing the same things they did. We're worshiping false gods and we're giving our affection and our physical bodies to things that please us. And we're asking God to bless that. This is a huge passage of Scripture. I didn't want to take the whole passage, but I'm going to have to read this whole passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Know the past to know the future. For I do not want you to be unaware. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Don't want you to be ignorant. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, he's talking about the Jewish people, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We, <laughs> we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble. as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, capital D. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The point of all of that is look back at Israel. Look at the mistakes that they made. Look at the sins that they committed and don't do it. Don't be idolaters. And listen, we worship the craziest things in America today. I worship the craziest things in America today. What do I give my time, my money, my effort to? What do I think about so much? That's what I'm worshiping. And he tells us plainly here in this passage in 1 Corinthians, don't be like them. What happened to them was written down for our instruction. Know the past to know the future and to avoid the same mistakes that they made. God didn't just randomly record some things about this crazy clan of Jewish people walking up from Egypt to Israel over a period of 40 years, which should have took them 11 days. By chance, check this out, this is nuts. He's saying, I'm writing this down because I don't want you to fall into the same traps, the same snares that they fell into. Which makes the Old Testament really important. Don't punt the Old Testament and say it's not important or not valid anymore. Read it and see what they did and don't do what they did. Don't be wise in your own sight, but don't be ignorant. That was point one. Point two, know the past and know the future. Now those are all, get busy, do something. Don't be lazy, don't be crazy. That's what those application points are. But listen, third application point. God does not change His mind regarding His promises. God does not break His promises. Bunch of lazy, crazy idolaters He's made promises to. The Jews and the Gentiles. And He's not going to change His mind about it. He is not going to change His mind about His calling of you. It is the kindness of God Paul will say later in Romans, that leads us to repentance. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He started it, he sustains it, and he will finish it. The benediction that we use so often here in Jude, He is able to present us before Him blameless at the day of His coming. He's able to do that and He's promised to do that and He will do that. And I want to 
finish this vein of thought and the message with this passage. As God speaks to Israel in the book of Isaiah, He will not break His promises. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Now remember, this is the Jewish people. Listen. But Zion, Israel said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord, my Lord, has forgotten me. And then this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God said that to obstinate, proud, idol-worshipping, Gentile-hating, Messiah-rejecting Jews. If a woman could forget the child nursing at her breast, if that were possible, even then, I would never forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You don't get away from that, folks. And written in the palms of God's hands are the names of the Jewish people and the Gentile people, if you go into the book of Revelation that He loves and will never forget and will never break His promise to. His beloved, in the face of their disobedience, in the face of their breaking the covenant that He established with Abram, and He goes way back to that covenant and He reminds them, Abram never passed between those pieces. He got a divine anesthetic and was sleeping when that covenant was made. And God passed through the pieces twice which was His way of saying, when you break this covenant, I will pay the price for it. I will shed my blood for your disobedience and I will restore you and my promises with you will never be broken. Get a hold of that Christian and go out and preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles and pagans and atheists. The righteous is as bold as a lion because the power of God unto salvation is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we hold it in the palm of our hands, knowing that our names are written on the palm of His hands. Don't be wise in your own sight, but don't be ignorant. Know the past and know the future and know that God does not break His God, You continually amaze me. And at the heart of every single bit of this is grace. Nothing that we have earned or deserve, but You have given freely and lavishly out of a never-ending store of grace that defines who you are. Yes, you are justice. Yes, you are wrath. Yes, you are love. And all of that flows from your grace, God. 
God, help me to not be wise in my own sight. Help me not to be ignorant. Help me to learn from the past to inform my future. And God, may I know in the very center of my being that you will never break your promise to me. May we live this out, God, by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.